HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives, careers, successes, and challenges. Today, I am ecstatic to have Kat Kinsman on the show. Kat is remarkable in so many regards. She is the senior food and drinks editor at Extra Crispy, a name that I, I love. I like all my food crispy and crunchy, actually whether it's for breakfast or otherwise, Extra Crispy focuses on breakfast. She was the uh, editor-at-large and editor-in-chief of Tasting Table. I love other editors-in-chiefs, since I was once editor-in-chief of Food and Wine magazine. And she was the founding editor of CNN's Etocracy. Uh, Kat has just finished a book called High Anxiety, like, hello, anxiety, not high as in... um, aggressively challenging anxiety, but both are true. You say hello, and it's also challenging anxiety. Um, I wonder if your coffee drinking has anything to, to do with that. But, Kat, honestly, I've known you as a writer. I've known you as an editor. Um, I've known you in these regards, but what I think is most compelling to me and what your moniker really should be is that of a humanitarian. Because when I look at all of the work that you've done, you bring humanity either to the stories that you write or to the subjects that are important to you like anxiety and depression and insomnia and you've created chefs with issues to help chefs in the food world and your book is trying to help heal yourself and help others who have issues with anxiety so you've brought to light important issues. And you love food. So these two things 
I have to ask you, do you think that there is a coincidence there? Or is it, is there a reason? Is there a reason that your anxiety and your food are two of your important um, markers right now? You know what? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I, Dana has been a a guiding light to me in this industry as long as I've been in it and even before that. So I'm ridiculously excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, I was saying this to somebody just the other day that even from childhood onward, I used food as a way to, um, specifically giving food to other people as a way to insulate myself from loneliness and worry. When I was a kid, I didn't necessarily fit in all that well. I really I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed reading a lot of things that other kids didn't like to. I was mis- <laughs> I was mistaken for a boy all the time. I had very short hair. I just I didn't quite fit, but I knew that I, you know, liked being around other people and I would make I would bake and I would make Kool-Aid and I would invite people over to my house. Uh, so I, I, it almost felt like a bribe, like, please, you know, if you come over here, I will, I will feed you. And so my house became the place where people would come to play tag or kick the can or whatever it was, because they knew that I would, you know, make a delightful, uh, treat for them to have. And, you know, I don't know if they would have otherwise I did, you know, I, I definitely knew I had a, a, a few friends who would hang out with me, even if I weren't <laughs> regardless of the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And I, and I actually prided myself on making really good Kool-Aid because I would make the kind you had to add the sugar to and I would skimp on the amount of sugar so it was a little bolder and put a little less water in there so even then I was tweaking it but I knew uh, instantly that if uh, or sort of intuitively that if I baked a big tray of something it's it's an act of generosity that you're going to feed other people and so I thought well even if people aren't going to like me that at least they're going to like the fact that I can feed them so so food was useful in in one regard but do you find food calming you know when you're feeling anxious? Are there foods that you reach for? Is that also part of who you are? It can be. You know, it's, I, I'm not a person who necessarily um, stress eats or, or something like that. That's not so, so much of my cosmology, but I know that actually when things get deep and dire and dank, I want nachos. <laughs> and, and really, I, I was thinking after nachos. What is like, about nachos? They're, they're so simple and yet so complex at the same time. They, they're crispy and they're crunchy and then they've got gooey cheese on them. And honestly, like right after 9-11, that's all I could eat. And I ended up talking with a lot of people, sort of going through that collective trauma about what was the food that got them through. And so many people focused in on one thing in particular, only egg sandwiches or only spaghetti or something like that, you know, a really simple grounding comfort food. And at times when I'm really stressed out, all I want to do is go and eat a big plate of nachos. (laughs) But I do. Do you you make them or do you have a a favorite nacho restaurant well i that's you know the, there's a place called nuevo mexico in my neighborhood that makes extraordinary nachos and i will tell you i was actually stressed out uh, over the weekend um i was having a great time i was at the iacp conference which is an industry conference and my head was full up with having talked to so many amazing people and i just had to take a break away and i thought where can i go where i'm not going to see anybody and i tried <laughs> to go to the guy fieri smokehouse in louisville <laughs> and they couldn't fit me in there were no seats at the bar and they told me it would be an hour wait for a table. So I specifically wanted to get the trash can nachos and I was denied by guy. Um, that would be a picture I would love to see. Cat Kisman, Guy Fieri restaurant. I, I, hey, I just met him a couple weeks ago. He's, he's 
a great guy. He really is. I just don't know about the nachos. That's all. <laughs> so, um, do you think that you were attracted to the chef's world uh, in part because you relate to the mind of a chef? I think the- in some yes, yes, in some way. I definitely think that I had a, I had a friend in high school who was he was he was complicated uh he was my friend's boyfriend and he there was something you know where a lot of high school boys you know, maybe we don't give them credit enough for the depths that they have but a lot of them <laughs> you know it's right there on the surface um there was he was really sort of a soulful lovely guy and he decided early on that he wanted to be a chef and we would talk about that he wanted to cook for us all the time and he uh he would sort of dispatch me go and try to find tamarind because you, you know, that's pretty ambitious. You're, you know, high school senior in Kentucky, where I'm from, and you're trying to find tamarind. Is but, that even something one can do at that time? No. Yeah. <laughs> and it, now, yes, absolutely. But right. uh, but at that point, oh goodness, no. Um, but I realized that increasingly, that the people who I knew who had those inclinations toward going into the kitchen were people who operated maybe on a slightly different frequency. And there was something about that that greatly, greatly appealed to me because inherently they were people who were seeking order and rhythm in one particular way. And on the other hand, they wanted to, in the midst of this, feed other people. And that's um, that's sort of the push and pull of chefs that I admire and appreciate so much. Uh, let's talk about the challenges in the kitchen and chefs with issues and how uh, you know, you're trying to address that. How are you trying to address well, about a year ago, I uh, decided, As actually it was New Year's Day in 2016, I'd been talking for so long about doing something about this issue that I saw popping up more and more and more. I would be interviewing a chef, whether it was at CNN or a tasting table, there would come a point in the interview where we would stop filming for a second, we would stop taping, and they would say, hey, um, can I talk to you for a second? I had started writing a lot of public essays about my own mental health issues, and uh, so I think maybe I was a safe person to talk to. You know, it happens once, that's great, maybe I, you know, they have a connection with me, they feel safe, happens another time, okay, great, you know, that's, that's wonderful, I'm happy to help, and then it started happening more often than not. And then in February of 2015, um, actually, no, sorry, in, 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 tw- in February of 2016, I know of three different chef owners who took their own lives. So mm-hmm. I had started this site just thinking, I'm going to put it out there, um, chefswithissues.com. It's you know easy enough to slap it up there and to put up some resources for people who maybe are going through a hard time, whether it's addiction or you know other mental health issues, but specifically working in the kitchen. And I put up a survey about mental health. And I thought maybe a couple dozen people would respond to it, maybe a couple hundred. Last I looked at the results, there were over 1,600 people in the industry who wow. responded to it. And people share their stories, and I, I tried to, to just talk about something that people weren't talking about very much because there is, there's so much um, chicken and egg going on here that people mm-hmm. who are vulnerable to these particular either impulses or illnesses are drawn to kitchen life, but then it's also exacerbated because of, of the way they, that kitchens and front of house mm-hmm. are, are run. I just wanted to, I'm not telling anybody that they have to change the way they are, mm-hmm. not trying to step you know, step on anybody's party or anything, but I want people to know that they're not alone. And if they need help, it's out there and they, yeah. And again, not alone. (laughs) So important. So that's a theme, right? You started out, you didn't want to be alone. You don't want the chefs to feel alone. And, um, it's the 
incredible connections that you make with everyone you meet. And now you're at parties and people want to talk to you about your anxiety. And how do you feel about that? I, does Is that overwhelming? Do you want people to just stop? It's, you know, it's a funny push-pull kind of thing because I do have the, if I see a person or a creature in pain, I want to help them. Um, and sometimes... At, at the same time, I have to protect myself a little bit. So I really gauge when I go out in public and when mm-hmm. I when I go to parties. If I'm in a state where I feel like, you know, I, ca- I can't necessarily deal with something, um, I maybe will stay in that night. It's, you know, part of my anxiety is, is a little bit of agoraphobia. So sometimes it's just really hard for me to leave the house. I've gotten much, much better about not apologizing for who I am or the fact that sometimes I just can't deal with being out. So... You know, for instance, at uh, South Beach Food and Wine, or South Beach Wine and Food, I never remember which uh, issue it is, but um, really fantastic parties going on. I had a great time to have intimate conversations with so many different people. Um, I opted out of some of the parties just because I thought, you know, I, I am full up. If somebody does want to talk to me about this, I want to give them my everything. I want to be fully present for it, and I, know, I don't want just to be... Um, you know, distracted or, or not at my full capacity. So, you know, I, I self-regulate on, on that some, um, but it's, it, it can be a lot sometimes. So you have been incredibly successful words that you probably, I see you, there's a lip quiver. <laughs> um, really cat says, but you have, you were, uh, launching etocracy. The CNN blog was brilliant and uh, before it's time addressing important issues, you're, you have such a loud voice. You're at tasting table. Now you're extra crispy. And yet you struggle with something that is really a demon. Um, God, that's a cliche. But it's true, though. You know, it's like it's like you are in a permanent embrace with a dancing bear. And sometimes you know, he's dancing on your feet and you can't move. And sometimes you glide. How do you deal with that and still achieve that level of success? First of all, that's an amazing description. And I'm absolutely going to steal. <laughs> it's yours. Um, it's it's a day-to-day kind of thing um, that sometimes, uh, you know, I, I have been lucky throughout all of this to have bosses who understand and to encourage and who I can be very open with. And I realize... I'm in a place of extreme privilege here. I'm a straight, white, cisgendered, married woman with access to health care and health insurance and all that. So I, I sort of have an, in my head, if not me, who? Um, because I, I, I have an extraordinary level of privilege that I, you know, I know that most people would not be able to say like, hey, I'm really having a rough time leaving the house today. Uh, so, you know, can I work from home? No, people get fired. You, mm-hmm. Like, you're not here? No, you, you can't do that. So... I'll the one recommendation would be to be open and honest with a boss that you might be absent. Do you think that's an option or do you think that's not even I think in something? one tier of work it, it is, but if you're going into your, you know, your waitress shift, your factory shift, your, you know, whatever that, that thing happens to be, I don't think there's, we, we still don't have the language to talk about it as mm-hmm. a society, which is why I wrote the book because I wanted to facilitate conversations uh, with people about this to make it a little bit easier for people who don't have kind of these, these, you know, cultural or monetary advantages that, that I do. So maybe it could facilitate some conversation there and 
make it a little bit. I mean, in my ideal world, you know, mental health days are on parity with sick days, mm -hmm. you know, and that and, you know, people would still be paid to go to work. Um, so I have sort of over the course, I've realized as of uh, next month, I'll have been pr a professional food writer for 10 years now. And yeah, it's, it's both short and long. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I had a sort of different career as a designer before this. And I've realized that, you know, once I, I was lucky enough to be working at CNN and they were encouraging me to share my story. And then I realized the cat's out of the bag. I can't Re, I can't retreat from this really. So anywhere that was going to hire me subsequently was going to know this thing about me. So I sort of, you know, shown a flashlight uh, down, mm -hmm. down the path. So, you know, people, you know, saw me coming, they know if you hire yeah. me, this is, this is what you're in for. Although, I, so, so many people w wouldn't have that. I'm just wondering yeah. for people who, you know, it's, um, it's an invisible disease. Yes. You are strikingly beautiful with the you know hair on, usually on the top of your head and the bright lipstick and the the eyeliner walking down the street no one's going to say wow that girl she doesn't have it together but what about those people who so it doesn't show and yet inside it's like so close to the surface it's funny because your my mental image of myself is that the, a messy feral child <laughs> who i was and and that's part of anxiety is you always think that if somebody knew the real me if they really knew who i was they're gonna they're gonna find out it at some point what a giant mess of a human being you know i am whether it's you know physically physically emotionally mentally oh my god the state of my desk um i've realized over the past few years i've decided not to uh apologize for who I am, that um, I came out, essentially. I always refer to this as a coming out of, of mental health, and luckily, you know, I had the support system to be able to do it. Um, and it was it was saying, this isn't an excuse for, for how, how I am, this is just explaining how I am. And again, like, I, I spent so much of my life apologizing for who I was, whether it was to boyfriends or friends or society, I was, you know, wouldn't be normal enough or pretty enough or you know, any of these particular things. And I finally got to a place, luckily, you know, part of it had to do with the fact that I, I met the most wonderful man on earth and that I started uh, getting, you know, sort of more critical success for, for my work. But I decided I wasn't going to let other people's opinion of me really stop me from liking myself. And that was a huge journey that's taken me into my forties to, uh, to get okay with. So the idea of Liking yourself is what allowed you to be better, do better, achieve more, do you think? Well, I think the self-hatred actually uh, <laughs> drives me forward a lot. But it's not, even, it's not even a liking, it's an accepting that this is just what I'm coming to the table with. Some things aren't going to change. I'm never going to be a neat person. I'm mm -hmm. never going to be an exceptionally punctual person. I, you know, am always going to have problems, you know, leaving the house or having, you know, you know, certain things that I, that strike fear into my core, but I can't, you know, I, being apologetic for those things or beating myself up about those things being a fact of me takes up so much of my energy. Mm -hmm. It ate up so much of my life thinking, okay, I, I need to be this thing for other people, you know, especially in sort of, uh, romantic relationships. I would think, oh, if I could only be the thing. And I thought, no, no, meet me, meet me where I am. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it takes, not being afraid to be alone and not being afraid and, and, uh, and not being loved. And once you realize that you're okay by yourself, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're so much better off <laughs> because then it comes to you. I mean, yeah. then you, you become a magnet for love because you're not desperately 
trying to to fill that hole that no one yeah. actually can ever fill uh, for you. I'm curious what you think about the role of alcohol and anxiety is you love a cocktail. I love a cocktail. You and I share a love of a French 75. I particularly love that you say that you like anybody's French 75. Like, you are not picky. That's the way I feel like if someone cooks me a meal at their house, I'm not picky. Invite me. I'll come. I like to be fed. You're like, pour me a drink. I like it. It's going to be good. But um, have you used alcohol as a buffer? Do you think that that is... Uh, a, a challenge in this food world that we both love? You know what? I think it's a huge problem in the industry. I, I am very, very lucky that I don't seem to have the particular genetic makeup that uh, drives me to use alcohol in that particular way. And that is just luck of the draw. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, very conscious about my alcohol intake. If I ever think that I am at a point where maybe I'm, I'm drinking because, you know, I want to feel better or because I, I want to feel a particular way as opposed to really enjoying a cocktail. Then I give myself a check mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, don't, you know, don't have another cocktail then don't drink for a few days or something. It's, it's constantly a thing. Um, because, you know, I growing up with, a, with a mother who, uh, she is physically and mentally ill and has always for a very long time been over medicated. Um, there is definitely, uh, an awareness to what substances, how, how they affect, uh, how they affect me, how they affect other people. And so it's just something that I'm really pretty hyper-conscious of. I am a control freak in, in, <laughs> in, in, in an emotional kind of way. And I always think I want to be completely in touch with what I'm actually feeling. Um, I call it sort of emotionally raw-dogging. <laughs> so I want to be present. I want to be available. I want to make the best decisions I possibly can. So, I, you know, it's a constant check. I think it's probably not... Uh, an accident that all of the serious relationships I've had have all been with men who had uh, a parent who was an alcoholic. Hmm. I think there's a particular sensitivity um, when you have a parent who has that wild card thing going on. So I've always dated people who, you know, have generally liked a cocktail too, but yeah. have always, you know, had to be mindful of how they, they were doing it as well. But yeah, I, uh, but sort of the shorter answer is I, I never let myself drink all that much in public because I want <laughs> to be able to get home safely. <laughs> um, but I, it's a huge problem in the industry. I talked to, and I think there's more and more awareness mm-hmm. of it and talking about it. I talk with so mm-hmm. many chefs who, uh, you know, have to deal with alcohol as a part of their regular existence and that is a tough tough struggle i was thinking at south beach i was wondering i knew a few sober chefs there i was wondering is there a chef specific meeting there right and um is someone taking care of the community in that way yeah uh, and i was started i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about this or not but i'm going to um at atlanta food and wine um they're doing the planning now and they asked if they're working on a track about chefs and wellness. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to suggest that that is the case during Atlanta food and wine, that there is somehow it's communicated that there, there, there might be a meeting. There might be something for chefs who, you know, need that during, you know, a several day orgy of food and drink, that this is a thing. I think that that's very smart. It also ups the level of acceptance, which is mm-hmm. one of your, uh, one of your goals. So I, ask each guest to bring something to read, something that inspires them, that they believe will inspire others. And I'd love to know what you brought today. 
Well, <laughs> I have a colleague named Margaret Ebai, who is our culture editor at Extra Crispy, and she is, I refer to her as the goddess Ebai, <laughs> and she's, she's talented and brilliant, and she wrote a great essay for a site called Midnight Breakfast, or actually, no, sorry, it's Midnight Breakfast... It's Oh, Midnight Breakfast is the name of the site. And she wrote it about being tacky. <laughs> so it's worth uh, looking for the whole um, for the whole essay. You can find it. As, um, Ebi is E-B-Y. Um, uh, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from that. Tacky is also a way of saying, that is too much. It's a way to say, hush, you're too loud, too bright, too attention-seeking. You take up too much space. You're too costumey. You're too dramatic. Your excesses are not welcome here. Its antithesis is that old chestnut flattering, which in <laughs> my experience applies to any item of clothing that makes you seem smaller than you are, both in personality and in physical size. See also tasteful, which assumes a hell of a lot about whose taste you are trying to please. It took a while for me to realize that most of the people I admire both for their work and for their style, are tacky as hell. <laughs> Even the places I love the most, houses crammed with art and books, Coney Island, New Orleans, are pretty tacky. Women who tell you that what they want, uh, women who tell you what they want without apologizing are tacky. Dolly Parton, bless her wig barn, is tacky. David Bowie was a vision of tackiness. John Waters is tacky, brilliantly so. So in my late 20s, I began to embrace tacky. Not, I hope, as in boorish, but as in a woman of size willing to wear pretty much whatever the hell I want. I dyed my hair blonde for real this time, and I am not all that vigilant about covering up my brunette roots. I got a tattoo on my left arm that is large and visible. I wear cowboy boots and spangled caftans and giant earrings. I'm lucky enough to be in an office and an industry where dress code isn't really an issue and to live in New York City where you don't usually where usually you won't even elicit a second look unless you are in full on Lady Gaga meat dress. <laughs> I buy things that I think are pretty. Last year when I had a book launch to celebrate, I had a woman make me a dress based on one of Elvis's jumpsuits with large rhinestone eagles on both sides and all of that in in and all of those things, in case it was ambiguous, are pretty much the height of tacky. I need to meet her. She, you would love her <laughs> so much. She is, she is uh, our culture editor at Extra Crispy. She is my work wife. She is, she is me, Margaret Ebi. <laughs> tell me, why did you choose that? She inspires me on a on on a daily basis. The way her creativity in in thinking, her unapologeticness for who she is and what she puts out into the world. She's got a great kind soul and I just tend to think that the world would be better if more people knew Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about food. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked enough about anxiety. You're great love a great motivator has been food and i've loved reading what you've written over this past decade you are not obsessed with trends it's not something that uh strikes me but you are obsessed with honesty deliciousness authenticity so what are you excited about right now you've been traveling you've been eating Tell me what is striking you. Oh, goodness. 
Well, yeah, I have gotten to travel an awful lot recently, and the thing I keep coming back to is just good eggs. <laughs> eggs and all... I know it's cliche at this point to put an egg on it, but I'm seeing so many exciting expressions of eggs. They're making me happy. I just went to to the UK where the yolks were red, the, the chickens were being fed such good, good things. And people are, and it's, you know, of course I'm obsessed with breakfast because it is what I do. Um, but so tell me, where, where did you have those red yoked eggs? I wish I could, re- oh gosh, Fernandez and Wells, I think it's, it's called. Yes, Fernandez and Wells. Um, in, in London, we were going to see, oh, the Harry Potter play. <laughs> <laughs> Both has managed to score tickets a year and a half ahead of time. And they didn't need much. They just needed toast. And I, I realized uh, in, in times of, of turmoil, current political situations, the, the things that I, I find, um, if it has an egg on it, I'll order it. If it's got just a simple ricotta, I'll order it on, on toast. Where's your, fa- where's your favorite ricotta toast? Oh, it just went away. It was oh. uh, Thistle Hill Tavern um, in Park Slope. They've combined resources, though, so now they're at uh, Atlantic Social Club, I okay. believe it's called. Um, it's a Dale Tall Day place, and it's really fantastic. But it was so simple and so beautiful, but it's something you can easily put together at home. Um, you know what? I'm, I really am enjoying excellent toast. I love good toast. I was just uh, in Philadelphia at High Street, and they have an andama bread that is moist four days later. It has a great crust. It has a great texture. It's really, it's got, uh, it's so delicious. I love toast. I I like bread, but toast even better. It's magical stuff. Uh, Raquel uh, Raquel Petzl's uh, new book about uh, toast is a phenomenal thing. I always mispronounce her last name. Sorry, Raquel. Uh, but it's it's just it's called toast, and it's all about the art of making the making good bread decisions, then treating the bread well, and putting good things on top of it. Because it, it, actually, I've burnt toast. You know, you oh, think yeah. how hard can toast be to burn? <laughs> it's actually not so hard. Um, does she? Ha- do you have? Because you're an expert in all things breakfast tricks for perfect toast yes um i skip the toaster really (laughs) really thick cut bread um if you can possibly use a cast iron pan a little bit of oil on there and you get better surface connection there you get that beautiful maillard reaction starting (laughs) and it's just a lovely thing but good bread makes good toast i mean i am not opposed to some wonder bread and some butter too and (laughs) i can burn through a whole lot of that but if somebody makes you really good toast it's it's a sign of love and care and i feel like you know we are in this national panic attack right now i saw barbara streisand is stress eating pancakes <laughs> she said ever since the election and i think we're gonna see a whole lot of return to uh, to these beautiful comfort things that are not dumb foods mm. i think they're very beautifully made you know eggs and bread and fruit and good honey mm. and all of those ingredients that are just perfect you have been on ingredient hunts. Yes. <laughs> Do you, is there something you are particularly chasing right now? Oh gosh, you know, I'm right now. I obsessively eat citrus. 
I will stick every Kara Kara and Honey Bell and Blood Orange into my face. There are a few. <laughs> our office is obsessed with. There's a particular kind of oh blood limes that we've been trying to find. What is a blood lime? I, I, it's it's one of those weird crossbreeds, and it's a very so it's red inside and green on the I, outside. I believe that is the case. I haven't gotten to uh, cut one open yet. Um, I have never had an etrog. What's an etrog? It's, an, it's another one of those uh, special citruses <laughs> and. I, and I think it is. How do you even spell that? E T R O G. And I think it is maybe used in some Jewish uh, cooking. But there are all these beautiful uh, citrus crossover things that are in the height of their season right now. I was lucky enough uh, at one point a few years ago, uh, my friend Isaac Toops had the first time I ever met him. He uh, brought some citrus juice from his backyard, or actually his dad's backyard, where a couple of trees had cross pollinated, and it's some of the best citrus. I've ever had, and he made some whiskey sours with that. We've been friends for a while. <laughs> now you've spent a bunch of time in New Orleans. Oh, do you sure have do. <laughs> favorite places down in New Orleans? Oh, I it's that is my happiest possible question. I love what Isaac Toops does. I haven't gotten to go to Toops South yet, but um, his, his restaurant is the Meadery. Uh, yeah, he has Toops Meadery, and now he has Toops South, and it's beautiful new Cajun cooking. I think what Anita Compton is doing at Compare Le Pan is really, really special with these sort of beautiful island flavors married with a little bit of you know the New Orleans local. Um, oh my gosh, if you have the pleasure and privilege of going to see Leah Chase at Duke Chase. A Friday buffet with a fried chicken is pretty magical. Uh, if you're there on another Friday, you can go to Galatoire's and have a long lunch that you have to stand in line for, and it's the best time you possibly can, <laughs> can spend. Uh, there are some bartenders down there who do making some magic. Lou Brow, who I think she just left Brennan's, and I'm oh. not sure where she went, but if you hunt her beautiful red head down <laughs> and have her make you a cocktail, I mean, there's there's old, there's new, there's, uh, oh my gosh, Josephine Estelle at the Ace Hotel. That is um, Andy Tyser and Michael Hudman uh, bringing Italian food <laughs> in a different way to uh, to New Orleans is fantastic. Or if you can just sit down at you know Casamentos or one of those other oyster houses that has been there for a really long time, um, hunt it all down, stuff it in your face. <laughs> I mean, Koshan, Pesh, all of all of these things that are happening are, are just beautiful, and you can eat old and new all in one day. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous opportunity. So your your love of food made it easy to be a, a writer ab- about it, but what made you be a food writer rather than a business writer, rather than any other kind of writer? It was, uh, some of it was accident, a very happy, happy accident that I... I was working in advertising. I was working on Madison Avenue as a, as a copywriter. I'd made a switch over from being a, just a simply visual person to writing as well, a little bit, um, you know, on ad campaigns. And a friend said, AOL needs a summer grilling editor. And I sort of said to the editor, Interesting ad, that that's a job. Isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think they'd, they'd gotten a sponsor. Uh, uh-huh. I, f- I forget who it was. And they said, we need somebody for three months. And so I took a leave. I was about to take a full-time job at the ad agency and said, I will kick myself if I don't do this. And within a week or two, um, the food editor had quit. And then the senior editor was laid off. And I just sort of picked up the ball and ran with it. Wow. And I, I just felt it was, it just made my life make sense. I thought this is a thing that I cared deeply about. It's a way to tell 
other stories in a really huge way. This is a massive audience. AOL, at, at least at that time, like had an absolutely massive audience. Nobody was telling me I couldn't do things. And I had been inspired for a long time by a mutual friend of ours, uh, Pete Wells, who I have been friends with uh, for uh, 18 years at this point, and I saw him become a food writer. A lot of it, you know, under under your guidance. And I thought, wow, you can have a career doing <laughs> that. And I was thought, wow, that's great that Pete gets to do that. Never occurred to me that I would get to so as now, well. Let's say that there's people who are listening in. They're like, oh my god, I really want to be Cat Kinsman. <laughs> How do I get to be her? Like you were saying, you know, Pete had this great job. What would you tell them? Like, what today is the answer to that question? I uh, facilitated a panel over the weekend at ICP that I was so happy. It was um, Yvonne Maffey and uh, Paul Forbes and and Leah Koenig, and she, they. And the, it was about finding your niche. So I write about breakfast, and you know Paula writes about cookbooks, and and Leah writes about Jewish food, and Yvonne writes about halal food. I. They each at some point ask themselves, "What's the story only you can tell?" So I think, you know, it's fantastic and you must like learn how to be just a good journalist in general and be able to write any kind of story find that thing that you can be more in depth with and more interested in than anybody else and become an expert on it and become the go-to person for that and if it comes from within if it doesn't come just from like oh hey you know what do you need like again you do need to be able to do a lot of service journalism even if you don't give a damn about what the subject is but then if you find something that really comes within you're never going to get sick of doing it and that's now, really important. Now, what about, so you write, but today a writer needs to shoot, a writer needs to do social, and a, a writer needs to actually be a communicator. Mm-hmm. It's, it, the medium is uh, mixed. Are you active on multiple platforms, and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I absolutely am. I, I, I attribute a lot to the reach that I have, uh, it being Twitter, um, I mean, Twitter, I have a pretty you know, decent following on there. And it's because, I, and honestly, I think it's because I'm honest with it. I used to, when I first started tweeting, I would apologize for talking about things that weren't food. And then I realized, wait, the people who I follow and I'm most interested in show a bit of humanity along with whatever it is that they're working on. And I started to talk a little bit more about my life. And also, and I think this is pretty crucial, uh, have conversations with people and then amplify voices that I thought really needed to be heard from. I mean, it's all about karma out there. You can't just be out there promoting your own things. That's dull. And it's, and, and it's, and it's small. So tell me who are some of the people who you like to promote? Let's promote them right now. You have <laughs> um, another opportunity. Shamila Lemieux, who she had been at uh, Ebony magazine and I'm totally blanking on where she works now, but she has so many brilliant things to say about you know, being a woman of color, to, uh, being a single mom, just being a, a forceful, brilliant woman in the universe. She's incredible. Roxanne Gay. Ah, just like uh, crushing so hard (laughs) on her who has, uh, you know, a lot to say about, you know, being, you know, a person who is thoughtful and brilliant and, uh, 
spiky sometimes <laughs> and not apologizing a bit for who she is in the world. She's so brilliant and thoughtful and uh, and her, the way she represents feminism is a bit is a beautiful and, and fantastic thing. I just have such a crush um, on her. Such a good writer. Yeah. Uh, the people who do uh, mm. Racist Sandwich are pretty fantastic as well. Okay, that's a discovery for me. I can't wait to check them oh, out. Oh, they have a great podcast and they're really all about sort of finding instances in in food coverage about where people can do better and do better on on race and gender and uh yeah they're they're really thoughtful and excellent about that and you know run by some very smart people out there and i just i think it's important to amplify these these voices and and talk about them and 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 get it out there i mean you at your core are so Generous, you know. I I feel like you always are putting other people first, putting other people up. It's just it is it is who you are, um, and part of who you are also is breakfast. So I'm going to ask you for yes. your um, your top five breakfast places um, anywhere. Uh, it could be all in one city. It could be around the world. But as you say, you now are a breakfast specialist. I am a, one of the nation's premier breakfast journalists. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I uh, made a few notes about this because I didn't want to forget any of these. Um, of course, Prune in New York City is the only uh, brunch that I will stand in line for. It's been worth it all these years. Gabrielle Hamilton and Ashley Merriman, like it's actually the first time I had bone marrow was at brunch there many years ago. And I love it to the point where I have a bone marrow scoop tattooed up the back of my leg. (laughs) And I think they, uh, they busted the mold of what breakfast could be. And what is their breakfast? Oh goodness. So the, 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 dish in particular that got me low these many years ago was a tongue and gremolata omelet with a side of marrow bone. Wow. They also do, uh, usually, I, I think it probably changes a lot, but they do a, you know, a fresh, fresh ricotta cheese. They do a sort of series of spreads. They are just, just really fantastic. And they're Bloody Marys. Even if you're not a Bloody Mary person, they might make you change that. Wow. Um, and they've been doing it for a long time and it's just so brilliant. So that's my, my New York City thing, unless I'm going to 7th Avenue Donut Shop in Park slope and it's just 24 hour diner um i love it i just get a cheese omelet it's perfect it's exactly what you <laughs> need it to be um in las vegas the pepper mill which is 24 hours a day since 1972 they don't even close on christmas <laughs> and they have a little lounge in the back where you sit near this bubbling pit of fire <laughs> i thought you're gonna say you know the lounge and then you can get married there oh but. you probably oh i think people probably have and i've definitely <laughs> seen like bachelor parties and things there but breakfast the size of your head <laughs> and it's the only place where i will allow myself to get chicken fried steak oh and God. i eat a portion of it i've you know i've brought my dad there i've brought every man i've seriously dated as an adult like i sort of gave them the pepper mill test um when i turned 40 <laughs> i wanted to make sure that it was sitting right there in the pepper mill <laughs> And it's 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 ridiculous abundance. So is is the test like? Do they appreciate how great this is? Is do that they, the test? Yeah, I'm not so much for testing relationships, but it's do they understand the level that they are so lucky to be in this particular place? <laughs> okay. Do they? Yeah, do they? Do they get it? And also, like, were they really kind to uh, the servers who have to wear these cocktail dresses and these short skirts and things? But like, are they are they good and kind and respectful to them? Okay. And luckily, they've pretty much passed the test. Um, in North Carolina in Chapel Hill Sunrise Biscuit Kitchen just magical biscuits you don't need a whole lot on them but just egg and cheese or bacon egg and cheese it's only a drive through 
and it's it's a must when you're in Chapel Hill. And what type of biscuit do they do? Is it it's just fluffy? a perfect one. It's, it's sort of dense and fluffy at the same time and moist and beautiful. Well, here's actually the dirty secret is mostly when I've gotten them, it's because I've still been in bed and my husband has gone and gone through the drive-thru and gone to get them. Like you said, you have the perfect I husband. really do. It, but they're they're big, like fluffy and dense at the same time with a slightly crisp outside and just magic. And the traffic backs up so much into the street. It's, uh, it's, it's backed up like... Just several blocks along there, and it's it's just it's absolutely a must. Um, in LA, squirrel, uh, squirrel, yeah, it's it's just perfect food. Uh, get one of those those bowls. I got the um, the sorrel bowl uh, when I was there, and got some ham on top of that, and an egg, and and I was just grateful and happy, and sitting on the sidewalk, and it's it that is worth the wait as well. Um, and in New Orleans, compare Le Pan, where it's Caribbean flavors, and uh, I. Trying to think. I was I was there. I hung over. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> it's New Orleans, so you have the combination of this incredible bartender Abigail Golo, who is is just a light and a joy in in New Orleans food, and then you have Nina Compton, who I think went down there for Top Chef New Orleans and stayed. She's, she's, yeah, she's she a fixture there and uh, has a beautiful restaurant. Yeah, and and just really wake me up. Beautiful flavors. I had, I think at plantains there last time. Just like gorgeous, thoughtful, vibrant flavors that make you happy to be alive. Now, I'm happy to be alive and and drinks because you love oh, coffee. Yeah. I do. I've been trying to cut no way. down a little bit on that. Well, you know. TMI, but I, you know, so that I have ovarian cysts and apparently caffeine not so great for those. So I'm, I've been trying to cut down, which is hard because we have a barista at work. Everybody should have a barista <laughs> at work. Isn't it great? It yes. makes it, I mean, there are so many things I love about my workplace, like starting with the people, like I'm lucky enough to work with an incredible bunch of people, but then also there's coffee. We have a, it sort of rotates up. There's this woman named Amber who is just my goddess. So I want to know, cause I'm newly obsessed with breakfast drinks. Yes. I was at Jean-Georges von Schrichten's new restaurant called ABCV. Oh, I've heard such great things. And the some of the drinks are served in wine glasses. They have ingredients that I have never, ever heard of that are tinctures and herbs. And you really, it's like a healthy breakfast cocktail. Uh, what are your thoughts about breakfast Drinks, you know, another thing. I mean, the matcha latte or the uh, turmeric and almond milk. There's so much going on. I feel like it's so fertile. What have you found in your, you know, breakfast drinks perusing? People are getting so wacky with it, but they're just doing what New Orleans has known this whole time. I remember the first <laughs> the chicory time. coffee. Oh, why got well? Also, the cocktails. Like there, there is a specific category of breakfast cocktails that they have in, in New Orleans. And I remember the first time I went there, I was going to interview a subject for a piece, and she said, "Well, you're gonna meet me as Poppy Tucker, who is the goddess of New Orleans, like New Orleans uh, cooking and radio." And she said, "Well, you're gonna meet me at Napoleon House, and you're gonna do the right thing and have a brandy milk punch." <laughs> 
<laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and realized that they, they just have it down. I got into a, a car with uh, one of my favorite bartenders there and she just handed me a coffee cup that was not full of coffee. <laughs> and she just said, here's how we say good morning. You know, she abstained until she parked the car on. Well, no, I will, I will note that. Um, and you know, those are your alcoholic drinks, but it's a nice way to, you know, indulge during the day. And it's how I know I'm on vacation. Uh-huh. If I'm having a, a, a drink, you know, before the sun is over the yard arm. Uh, but I think there's so much fertile ground. I haven't gotten too much into juicing, but now that, you know, I'm potentially having to get my coffee intake, uh, I think I might be exploring it a little bit more. Um, I can't with so much with the like aggressive health shake kind of stuff. I That doesn't seem like that's your sweet spot. Not so much. Like, you know, I, I actually have started drinking a ton of kombucha. <laughs> And that's, oh, if you could see Dana's face that she just <laughs> made. It is the, the not my drink face. Definitely yeah. Not my drink. And, but for me, I've, I've realized to, you know, as I've not been feeling so great, I've started drinking uh, kombucha for breakfast. And it's especially with the different flavors, like a, one that is really full of ginger and lemon. And it really makes me feel better about the day. I feel like I'm some, like setting my gut right or, you know, doing that. And, it, and that's actually really made a, a huge difference in my mood to be able to have that. Also, I think there's a slight amount of alcohol in there too, which <laughs> the, I don't try to think teeny, about too much. There's a teeny tiny amount. Well, okay. I like the idea of setting your gut right. And I'm going to ask you another gut question, but not gut health, which is <laughs> another topic, another show for sure. But uh, in this food world, there are people who move you. Okay, maybe it's not the gut, maybe it's the heart. But in your gut, you know that they're the most important people to you, the, the people you want to pay it forward to and on speaking broadly we um we have a thing called the hall of dames who would you recommend for the hall of dames i have it was i was thinking about this it's so hard because there's so many answers to it so many possibilities uh can i give two sure leah chase Oh, and Chef yeah. Leah Chase in New Orleans because because of who she is, because of what she's done. She was a civil rights pioneer. She allowed uh, people to uh, mix race upstairs in a room and plan uh, during the, the civil rights movement. And at great personal risk, she did that. She allowed black people and white people to get together and, and, and talk and have a safe place to be to plot the struggle. And she makes phenomenal food and she is, she is a national treasure. And Ashley Christensen, oh. who is a phenomenal chef and an extraordinary philanthropist. Uh, she's so humble and quiet about it, but she raises millions and millions and millions of dollars for hungry children. And uh, I, I just, my heart beats faster and, and warmer when she is in the room. That's, with that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with uh, some more questions from my extraordinary guest, Kat Kinsman. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. 
The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and this is Speaking Broadly with the extraordinary Kat Kinsman. Kat is now a breakfast professional, but she's a writer. She has written an incredible book called High Anxiety, and you have just brought anxiety to the fore while also maintaining a day job. And I, I'd like to ask you about this balance in your life because I wonder if there's a conflict. You know, here you are talking about um, something, well, something very personal and you have a day job. How do you balance those two? It's, a, it, it's constantly a, a difficult thing. I am extraordinarily lucky to have the day job that I do amongst emotionally supportive and excellent people who allow us to do what we do in a really innovative way. So I can actually use breakfast to talk about anxiety, which is a really great thing. The whole, I always call the side a Trojan horse sort of because we, you know, people think, oh, it's just a side about breakfast. It's just going to be eggs. We use it as a way to talk about so many different things. So that allows me to really scratch that itch because we can talk about all these different things through the medium of breakfast, which you wouldn't think, but it somehow <laughs> really works. And the fact that I have a lot of, you know, all my colleagues are, I think they were our, our, our boss, um, Meredith Turrets, who created the site, is just brilliant. And she hired people with the notion of how they would get along emotionally. And I think that's a really huge and important thing. So I'm super lucky with that. Um, it's it's hard to do that because uh, to have all of this though because I you know I wrote a book while I had a, a full time job and I want to be a good wife and a good friend and I realized that I just had to be incredibly clear up front with people about you know here are my limitations for right now and uh, and and just go with that I I, I did a check in with my husband when I was starting to write the book because I knew that was going to take a lot of time from us and I said you're allowed to uh, call me on it whenever if you feel that I'm not being present enough if you feel like you need me home for dinner you're allowed to say that to me um i also did buy him uh guitar lessons and, <laughs> and give him some distractions yeah well and to give him you know a creative uh project because he's he's a wonderful musician and composer and he really dove into you know making a lot of music during that time mm -hmm. and but I, I i let him know that we needed to, you know, stay aligned uh, during this time, and he was allowed to, you know, tell me if I wasn't giving him enough. I'm sure I was zero fun to live with while I was <laughs> writing that book, and with a lot of my friends, and most of them were incredibly understanding about it. Not all of them, but most of them, <laughs> the fact that I, I can't really go to parties, I'm not going to be going out to things, I might have to, you know, miss some important things, but this is, I really have to hunker down and, and do this, and you know, scratch at my deepest wounds, mm -hmm. and maybe open up some new ones while I'm doing this. Oh, scratching wounds. 
wounds. That just sounds bad. Yeah, a lot of emotional. I was wondering why I was when I was writing the book why I felt so tired. Yes. And then I realized, oh, because I just you know had to You're go into blood every day. Yeah. On a page, really. It really is. And to go back to the most painful times of your entire life and and really put yourself back into the mindset of how you were then is really a difficult thing to do. So Tiring. you know, I'm sure I'm dropping balls all over the place, and I always feel like there's something that's not in alignment. Other like you know, I haven't done my part of you know the the housework or or I I owe a billion people emails you know that I suck at getting back to emails Dana knows this firsthand that I'm very bad at that and I realize I have a billion chances to beat myself up every day and I'm trying to give myself the little bit littlest bit of a break about saying like I didn't get to that today I don't have to stay up and do everything I'm allowed to sleep I'll be able yeah. to I, I've been I think t- giving yourself a, a, a break yeah. is such a, an important thing not too much so that you're just yeah. you know uh falling apart or not fulfilling your obligations but being hard on yourself has done you no good does nobody actually any good to just you know beat yourself up for something that's your choice like in this case it was your choice to do two things at once and then you accept that and then you know sort of make the best of it i'm um i'm curious about what to you defines success because I think it's hard for you to feel like a success, but you've come such a long way, and I feel like now it things are aligned, and you do in some way feel like, yeah, I'm I've pulled it together. But what does success mean to you? You know, I I was thinking about that again. I was ran this workshop at IACP this weekend. It was about managing freelancer anxiety, and and I had. You know, it was talking to people about you know what does success look like to you, or is that a daunting thing? Is that an exciting thing? And it's changed for me a lot because I, I've you know changed professions in in some ways. I've and the landscape of what I do has has changed a lot. I realize that I am at my happiest and best if I feel like I have helped other people, and that was just the way I was raised by you know very. Catholic parents who said that that was what our job was as, you know, as humans is whatever you have, you have to share it. So, you know, I'd love to be able to write another book. I'd love to have, you know, bigger and bigger platforms to do what I'm doing, but I've had so many opportunities over the past you know, a year or two to uh, to get out there and really stand in front of people who I love and respect in the industry, and have them listen to me about on the topics of you know mental mental health and and life in the kitchen and and all of that. And I've seen some real world things happen out of this. People changing some things they're doing in the kitchen, maybe having more conversations. That's if I feel like I've been able to make people's lives a little bit better, that is that is success to me. So when you see a chef taking on or people taking on the um, the lessons that you've learned, accepting mental illness, not you know trying to erase the taboo, try to uh, that makes you feel really good, and that is personal success. It's not the number of pieces you've written. Mm-hmm. It's not um, you know you're extra crispy versus you know something else. It's really it's from the heart, the successes. In- yeah, I, I realized the importance of giving myself credit for small victories, which I am not always <laughs> great at. Um, but I was, I was telling people to do this, that there are small accomplishments every day. Like, would I like to have a number one bestseller? Well, yes, of course. But the really great thing has come in emails 
or Twitter messages or something that I've gotten from people from strangers saying, you made me feel understood with your book. Um, that's huge. I can be in the middle of a horrible, horrible day where I'm just beating myself up and feeling like a failure and something like that will come in and it just changes everything. And like, that's, that's success to me. I was interested in your talking about, uh, managing, uh, anxiety through change for other people. Cause I'm sure you have your own way you do it yourself, but when people are confronting change, I feel like there's so much change in the world right now and people are trying to change their careers and they don't exactly know what to do. What is the best way to uh, address that kind of anxiety? For me, it's, and I've been doing this a lot with people whenever I speak in public, breathe. I take three, I had a therapist who drilled this into me and it sounds like such a fundamentally, you know, simple thing, but especially in times when we're tense and we're panicking about things, we forget to just stop and breathe. I find myself in, as my husband says, startle mode all the time, all (laughs) hunched over and, and holding my breath. And I set a little reminder on my phone to stand up and breathe or, um, you take three deep breaths in through the nose, hold it, and then out through the mouth. And it's just a little gift you give yourself. It hits the re, it hits the reboot button on your panic attack. Um, I volunteer for a, a crisis counseling uh, text line called Crisis Text Line. It's a brilliant thing, and we're only communicating through text with the people who are who are checking in. And I send out this GIF that you're supposed to breathe in time with. It's really really brilliant. And if you can control your breathing and get a handle on that, suddenly things are clearer. You're in a better physical state. You're less likely, likely to make a decision out of panic. You are, it puts you back into your body and, and roots you. And then you can make a better decision from there. I guess what I'd like about that idea is you're not giving practical advice like, well, just be sure you take three actions a day and, you know, be sure you email people and, you know, talk to your best friend. It's actually coming back to yourself and knowing that the answer is within you. So if you can just be calm, you will find the answer, you will make the change, and it's all going to be okay. But you have to find that place of calm, and breathing helps you do that. Yeah, you're, you have your lungs with you all day. <laughs> I remember I was talking to a chef. Uh, he he was just panicking. He came up to me. Uh, I, was, I was speaking at a conference in Copenhagen, and he was just he was this young man and absolutely adorable and just freaking out. And I said, no, no, you're going to stop and and breathe. He's like, I don't have time for that. I'm like, you don't have time (laughs) to remain alive and do a basic human function. And I saw him the next day and he seemed like a different person. And he said he'd been making a point of just walking around breathing. And I started talking with other chefs there. It was great. I had this seminar, like Renee Redzepi was there and Bobek and, 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 you know, one of the Canlist brothers. And we said, could we do a pledge where you get your team together, maybe when you're you know, starting service or something and take 30 seconds and breathe. Don't know if that anybody has implemented that or not, but I think it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Just take that moment. Well, I'm going to take this moment to thank you, Kat, for being on the show. I am, as you know, I'm a huge huge fan. For people who want to follow you and learn more about you, um, what handles can we share? How can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, it's kitten with a whip and uh, tart.org is my personal site and you can always go to extracrispy.com. That's great. And uh, for me, Dana Cowan, you can find me at FW Scout or at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. All of my shows are archived uh, at heritageradionetwork.org, but you can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love any feedback. Uh, you know, DM me on 
Insta. I love hearing from you. Uh, new guests you'd like to hear, different topics that you think would be interesting for the show, or any feedback at all, that would be fantastic. I want to thank my amazing engineer, David Tadashore, and all of you listeners out there. Um, come back next week, Wednesday noon. See you then. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.